Uh, our passage today is going to be out of John, chapter number 15, verses 1 through 6. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, you can turn there. But if you do not have a Bible with you, there's going to be some hard copies in the seats in front of you in each row. And if you don't own a Bible, we want to tell you, hey, this is our gift to you. Please take that home. If you don't have your own Bible, we'd love for you to make that one your own. Again, we're going to be in John chapter number 15, verses 1 through 6. And so once you get there, if you would stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter number 15, starting in verse 1. There are Jesus' words, and he says this. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. This is God's word. You can be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for being the vine dresser for us. Thank you that you are committed to our discipleship, committed to our growth. God, I thank you that we have the blessing and the opportunity to gather together as the saints, to sing, worship, hear, experience, commune with you, commune with one another. Thank you that you've given us the gift to be in a, a country that allows us this kind of freedom. This morning, we remember our brothers and sisters all over the world who don't have that. And we ask, my God, that you'd be a great comforter to them. Give them great courage to trust and obey you uh, in their context. And Lord, for us, we ask now that we would not take lightly the opportunity to, to be here. And that you would open the eyes of our hearts and open our ears to hear that you would shape and form us. Give us great joy this morning, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we've been looking a lot this summer at what it looks like to be a disciple. And so this morning, I'm gonna be closing out our summer sermon series on the heart of discipleship. Uh, and, and what I wanted to do is, I'd love to, to culminate this series with a text that's really near and dear to my heart. It's one that has always been uh, a faithful kind, you know, you kind of have those life verses, if you will, the ones that you go back to. Does everybody know what I'm talking about? It's like you, ones that have been a part of your life or they, they are very significant. The word of God is the word of God and therefore it's always fruitful and never returns void. But there are texts, I, I think, for each of us that uh, we can go back to. And, and this is the, one of those ones, early on in my Christian ministry, a pastor once told me that I needed to always have a sermon that was ready to preach in case someone asked me on a whim. John 15 was that sermon. Now, I will tell you, that's not why I preach today, so just calm down, all right? This isn't the one I just pulled out of the filing cabinet, all right? Although I did have to watch a Jonas alone this week, so I could have done that. Uh, my wife's been out of town. But uh, no, I, I came to this text because when I think about discipleship, I always kind of lean back to John 15 at the heart of what Jesus is calling us to when he says to follow him. Um, secondarily, if, you were, if you're a member here and you were at our members meeting, uh, you know that at that time, we, we were, as we are typically at Providence, we were running behind in our, in our meeting schedule, and I said, 
And I'm going to try to write a blog that can kind of recap my time on sabbatical. If you're a first-time guest here, I was, I was out for an extended period at the beginning of this year on sabbatical. It was a great time for my family. And I wanted to kind of update the church. I felt like that would be helpful for all of us. So this morning's sermon is a way to kind of culminate the two of those. We're closing out our sermon series, but also you're going to find that in this sermon there are quotes, lyrics, scriptures, thoughts that all come from the time that I had uh, on sabbatical, which was really good for Morgan and I. Uh, but... At the beginning of this year, or actually the end of last year, the, the kind of the culminating idea that led to me going on sabbatical was me kind of finally coming to grips with the truth that was in my own soul, which was that I had gotten to a place ministerially, personally, spiritually, that I felt very stuck. I don't know if any of you have ever felt that way. And by stuck, I mean that I kind of felt as though um, I knew the truths of the gospel and I couldn't preach myself out of how, of how I was feeling. I couldn't uh, believe myself out of how I was feeling and experiencing my life. And I couldn't do much of anything except really just go through the motions of trying to be obedient every single uh, day. But in reality, I kind of felt stuck in knowing the right things to do but not being able to apply that. Um, and so finally, I, I started to recognize in my own life that what what. Where there used to be passion and love that was driving my, my actions, it now was just kind of duty and, uh, and really kind of religious obligation. Uh, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, maybe you've experienced this. I would venture to say if you haven't experienced this yet, I just want to give you a fair warning. You could very well and probably will experience this at some point. One of my favorite books that has ever been written is a book by a guy named John Bunyan. He, it's called The Pilgrim's Progress, and he... he he talks about, he uses uh, constant kind of metaphors of a man's, not, a man's life, the man's name, is it John or is it Christian? I can't remember. Anyway, so who, who said it? Christian. His name's Christian. And so he uses these kind of names. He'll meet people along the journey to the celestial city. He'll, he'll meet a guy named Despondency or the, or the pond of despondency he'll fall into. He'll meet a guy named Virtue. So it's basically all these different people that he meets along the way. What I love about John Bunyan's work is that it gives us the inclination that although each of us are very unique and we all have our walk with Jesus, we also all have similar struggles. We will all face certain things, and, and I want to help you this morning by telling you that if you haven't been where I'm talking about I was, I want to tell you this is definitely an easy exit off the freeway of the journey of discipleship. Sometimes you don't even know you exited until you're in the middle of a field, and you're like, when did I get off of the freeway of loving Jesus? And that's kind of where I find my, found myself, um, is that I kind of felt stuck. And during my sabbatical time, I was able to have coaching and really a lot of help from mentors. And there was one specific moment where I was in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm sitting with a bunch of other lead pastors, and one of our mentors gets up, and he begins to share, uh, and he uses this chart. It's something like this. He drew it on the board. He's probably much better than me. I used Microsoft Word or something, okay? So I want to I wanna use this chart before I kick off into my sermon, because this is really helpful. It was helpful for me. And he basically drew this up, and he started with the top, and he said, pastors, you oftentimes, every single week, are trying to help people to work themselves in their discipleship between these two top boxes, that they would learn to know who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, who they are, and who he calls us, who's he called and created us to be, and then to apply those truths, so obviously that's what I just said is the Bible, right? We get up and we teach from the Bible because we believe that this is ultimately God's word, this is ultimately the truth. Like, you don't really wanna hear from me, right? You wanna hear from what God has to say. That's why we go from the Bible. Uh, and then we say, what, what is discipleship? It's learning to apply those truths to your life. 
I'll give you an example. When you learn that you serve a generous God who has given everything for you, not because you deserved it, but because it's who he is, right? We know that God is generous not just because he gives us blessings daily, but because he gave his own son. This is why we know that God is generous. John three sixteen is the most generous verse in all of the Bible. When we start to know that we serve a God that's generous like that, learn, then we go to apply. And how do we apply that to our lives? We then can live generous lives because we serve a generous God. Do you see how that works? And so this is why we're, we're givers or, or we, we are... Uh, often involved in things like Compassion International or whatever. We want to live generous lives. We open up our homes because this is who we are. That's a simple learning and applying of theology, and this is what we try to do, right? It's what we've been doing all summer. Who is God, and then who are we in light of that? Let's apply that to our lives. Who is God? What has he done? And then who are we in light of that? What's he calling us to do? And we look to apply. Now, what my mentor said, he said, the problem is what happens sometimes, and this is what had happened to me, and this is why when he said this, my ears perked up, because I'll, I'll be honest, at the beginning of my sabbatical, I wasn't doing too well with sitting in sermons or sitting in lessons, right? Because I'm just like, this is what I've been doing for a very long time. But my ears perked up. He says, what happens is that sooner or later we get to a disconnect that we can know all the right things but still not be able to see a change in our lives. We can know all the right things about God but still not know why deep in, in, our, in our heart of hearts, it's not, it's not jiving with our everyday actions. And maybe we do the right things but deep down in our heart we know it's not because we're in love with Jesus because we know it's what we ought to do right? And he says, what happens when you get in that? I, I've titled it the, the cul-de-sac of discipleship. Does that sound familiar to any of you? It's where you feel like you're kind of just going around. It's like, we, we live in, uh, you know, Houston, we don't have these, but you know what I'm talking about, the roundabouts? You kind of feel like that's where you're at spiritually. You're like, man, when am I ever going to be able to, like, get out of this? And he said that learning and applying is good. In fact, it's essential, but he said what happens is oftentimes, see that dotted line, that dotted box around that? Oftentimes we think that there's an imaginary fence there that that's the only way in which we learn. And the truth is the Bible would teach us that at, there are times where there is nothing that can break us out of the cul-de-sac except experiencing God. That what we need deeply is to not just know the right things but to experience those truths in a tangible and very real way. Now I know when I say that immediately, some of you who are less charismatic think, where's he going? Like, you just kind of tightened up. Calm down. I'm not going to pull out a tambourine. I won't be doing snake handling this morning. But I do want you to know, when I go through the Bible, and I hope that you've gone through the Bible in the same way, what you find is that God not only reveals himself to men like Abraham, but then they have experiences with God, right? Or Joseph has experiences with God. Or Jacob, right? Remember, this is a famous one in the book of Genesis where he says, uh, he's laying down and he's using a, a rock as his pillow, and he says, Surely the Lord is in this place. He sees Jacob's ladder, the angels ascending and descending. He says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He had an experience with God that changed Jacob. And this is uh, followed up by him wrestling with God at night. He gets a new name, Israel, right? We, I can go on and on and tell you. What we need is for, God to, for us to experience the truth of God, which then can lead to transformation in our lives. And then we, here's the thing. Here's what I want you to know. Not every day is the day of Pentecost, but without the day of Pentecost, the disciples would have been smarmy cowards just like they were when Jesus was crucified. They needed it. Jesus even told them, wait in Jerusalem, don't go yet until you're endued with power. Because if you try to go out now, it's going to go poorly for you. And so they waited. Right? The same is true of us. There are times where if we're only doing the learn and apply and we don't get to experience the truth of God that we can find ourselves in the cul-de-sac and soon and very soon all we have to really offer ourselves and others is just religious duty. 
So this morning, what I wanna talk to you about as we close out our discipleship series is, it's really just simple. We can't conjure experience, right? Can we agree with that? Like, like we, 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 we can try, but many of you, maybe, maybe you're even here because you've, you've been a part of that and it just kind of burns you over time. You know what I'm talking about? It's where they bring the fog machines out, like also known as the spirit, you know? The light show, whatever it may be. Like if I have inflections with my voice that are more passionate or less passionate or really loud and then whispers, then that might move you emotionally. But if you know God, and I mean really know, you know that ultimately I can't conjure up experience. Not this kind of experience, at least, that I'm talking about. I might be able to conjure up surface level emotions, but that won't move us to the place that we're talking about going. So, what I want to talk about this morning is so then what do we do? How do we experience it if we can't do it? What is the priority of discipleship in light of this? That's what I want to talk about this morning. So I think that John 15 gives us a little inclination into that. So if you'll turn your eyes there, I'm just going to read the first three verses here again. Jesus is speaking here. These are often called Jesus' farewell words in the Gospels. Because, not because Jesus is leaving them, we know that um, he will be leaving them, but we know that Jesus is resurrected, and then he says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But this is the end of Jesus' earthly life in this moment before he's the resurrected king. So he's giving them a farewell before the cross. These are his final departing words. Also, an, an important note here would be that this is the back end of Jesus' earthly discipleship with these guys, Right? They're gonna have discipleship and continue to walk with Jesus, but from this moment on, after the cross, they're gonna be walking with the risen King of Kings, Lord of Lords, who's ascended, and really the Holy Spirit will, be entered, will enter into their lives, and now this is how they're going to interact and commune with God. This is the last time they're gonna have these kind of sit-down talks, one-on-ones with Jesus like this, on this side of the cross. And so what did Jesus tell his disciples near the end? Well, here's what he says. I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it could bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Jesus starts with a metaphor. And this metaphor has three different roles in it. The father has the metaphor of being the vine dresser. The father is our caretaker. He's our overseer, if you will. The son is the vine, the source. Jesus is the source for who we are, the branches. The Christian is the branch. Now, what is this metaphor really setting out to do from Jesus here? I think that this metaphor is set out to bring peace through self-awareness. Jesus is trying to set his disciples at rest by reminding them of the role that they play in this grand scheme we call discipleship. So let's check this out. Hear me on this as I walk through the roles. The Father is going about the business of accomplishing the work that he set out to do in us. I need you to hear this loud and clear. The Father's more committed to your discipleship than you are. It's his deal. He's more committed to you being conformed into the image of his son than you think you are right now. That's good news. And he does the heavy lifting. So he's the one who comes in and he takes the branch that bears fruit. He prunes away that branch so that it would bear more fruit and more fruit and more fruit. He's taking care. He's making sure there's water. You know, using this metaphor of the vine dresser is kind of a big deal. The vine dresser's responsibility is to make sure that plant grows. Jesus' role is to give us everything that we need to flourish, which he's done and continues to do. Now check this out. What are you? 
the branch. Now, I kind of laugh at that because that's funny, right? You're j- you just hang out there and try to hold on to the vine. That's your role. Like, this is what Jesus tells his disciples. If you're a real active person, that can be kind of discouraging, right? Jesus says, listen, here's what you need to do. Don't screw this up. Hang on to the vine, right? Or Jesus looks at us and he, he says, listen, you are beautiful. You're gonna bear fruit. Um, but but just, just, just hold on to me. This, this is what you need to do. This is how you're going to grow. He starts his final talk on discipleship by putting us at rest and saying, listen, the heavy lifting is done by me. Now, I think that's important because we've talked a lot this summer about a lot of things involving discipleship, right? We've talked about mission and being hospitable. We've talked about uh, gathering together, the, the word being placed in our hearts, and then what we're supposed to do to cultivate that, the pursuit of righteousness and holiness. We've talked about a lot of things this summer, and, and, and for Jesus to say this first, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a cold drink of water to the soul where he says, listen, Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you is going to complete it. And, and you need to rest in the fact that I'm doing that heavy lifting. Now, if you're anything like me, I, I, I struggle with things that I'm not good at. Like, I know it's pride. I don't like to not be good at stuff. So there are some things that I can swallow, though, not being good at. Like, for instance, I never played baseball as a child. It's okay if I go to home run derby and I'm not the best. I, I need to be... This is a confession moment. I'm not like that with everything. There are times where I step in the room, in my flesh, I think, I am the best at this. I will be the best at this. And I have a hard time if I'm not the best at this. Okay, baseball's just not one of those. I walk in and I'm just having a good time, right? I'm like, okay, swing, miss, no big deal, right? Then there's like basic human functions, though, that I just can't handle. Like if I'm not good at, sometimes this is even true, edging my own lawn, that just frustrates the mess out of me. Like this is a basic male function that I'm not good at, right? I've, like, I look at, my, I look at my lawn sometimes, and I kind of step back, and I'm like, it looks like I tried to cut my son's hair. This like, kind of messy and botched, and like, this is bad, and I struggle with that. Sabbatical was a funny season for me because, in all honesty, I didn't realize how unskilled I was at truly resting. I know that sounds funny because to talk about rest as a skill is, is kind of it's kind of weird, right? But, but I want to say this to you. I would imagine that just because you're an American, you're not very skilled either. You might be saying, no, you, know, you don't know my son. My son's a schlub. He's great at resting. Let me, let me define rest for you in the way that God defines it. Listen, I'm not saying that you're not skilled at vegging out. You probably are, right? Sit down, nice football game, Cheetos, you know, whatever. You're probably good at that. Or Netflixing, you know, like you're probably good at binge watching TV. That's not what I'm talking about though. You can schlub it just fine. But here's what I I imagine is true of you because I found out it's true of me. I couldn't truly rest in the presence of God without noise, distraction, and entertainment. It was really tough. Really tough for me. And that's hard. It's hard to not be good at something that, especially as a pastor, it's like, shouldn't I be more uh, skilled in this? Like if there were prerequisite, I feel like that might be the top 10, sit quietly before the Lord. And I just was not good at it. Like I'm thinking of all the things I needed to be doing. It took me, I kid you not, not just days, not just months to start to actually be able to just sit quietly before God. Why? I think because deep down, I did what many of you did when I just told you that God does the heavy lifting in your discipleship. I nodded and went on about my business of figuring out how I could do more stuff for Jesus. 
This is a, from a quote from a book that I read on my sabbatical uh, by a guy named Mark Buchanan. He says, in some ways, the whole point of the Exodus was Sabbath. Now, if you're not super theological, no worries, I'll, I'll catch you up. The Exodus is whenever God says, let my people go, takes them out of the land of Egypt where they were under slavery, brings them through the Red Sea. This is the, you know, the children's ministry songs that we used to sing, like Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, let my people go. You know what I'm talking about? That's that, okay? It takes them out into the wilderness, and he brings them and gives them the Ten Commandments. Mark Buchanan says, in some ways, the whole point of that was Sabbath. Let my people go became God's rallying cry, that they might worship me. This is so key. At the heart of liberty or freedom of being let go is worship. But at the heart of worship is rest. A stopping from all work, all worry, all scheming, all fleeing to stand amazed and thankful before God and his work. There can be no real worship without true rest. If there were ever a line that, that shocked me a little bit, it would probably be that one. Check this out. If discipleship is what we said it was this summer, which is this, living lives of full worship, quorum Deo, before God, then Jesus is right to put rest at the beginning of John 15. Because if what Mark is saying is true, that rest is at the heart of worship, and discipleship is really about learning to rest in the finished work of Christ, then we gotta be better at learning to rest, truly, not just schlubbing it. I'm talking a soul-level rest in Christ. You see, Jesus reminds us of our roles in John 15. He says, you're the branch, you're beautiful, you have purpose, you're gonna bear fruit, but first and foremost, you're reliant on my work and I'm really good at what I do. I love that Jesus says something here that many times as I read through John 15, it seemed like it was out of place. He says, already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Do you guys ever think that's kind of out of place in the whole vine metaphor? Like I know vine dressers, you think like a clean plant, but I just think that's a stretch. It just seems weird. Until you recognize what he's doing here, he's once again pointing out something that's true about you, not because of you, but because of him. It totally fits, doesn't it? Already you are clean, why? Because of the word I've spoken to you. Already you are clean, why? Because of the word that Jesus spoke. Already you're forgiven, why? Because of what Jesus is about to go do on the cross. Already you're a child of God, why? Because Jesus has done what's necessary in order to adopt you into the family. He's giving you this, hey, this is true about you, why? Not because of you. Why would he do that? Is he just trying to make us feel indebted to him? No, he's trying to give you a pattern through which you understand discipleship for the rest of your life. The daily we need to be reminded of this. What does this do? I think it combats our tendency to overwork, overworry, overstress, and be overconcerned. And I think what it does at a base level is we get to experience, now again, I can't conjure this up, so I'm not trying to make this happen, but... but I think what happens is it gives us an opportunity to experience what real peace looks like, which our world is bereft of peace. Our world is bankrupt of peace. What do I mean when I say experiencing rest and peace? Well, when you experience rest and peace, the circumstances of life and the journey of discipleship, you soon know that nothing that happens to you is arbitrary or random, and therefore it doesn't rock you as much. Um, you realize the Father's weaving his way into our lives in a way that he desires for us, and therefore, you don't have so many overly anxious moments. You realize the most important aspects of your growth and sanctification is God's work and not your work. So, so I always use this analogy. It's like a kid helping his dad work on the car. It, you know, you give him the wrench, and, and, and most of the time, you know, he, he, he is actually working actively against you, but you do it because you love him. 
This is your role in discipleship. He gives you the wrench, you do some stuff, and ultimately he has to redo that. But you're a part. It's about the relationship. This is what Jesus is after. Maybe a better analogy would be like, it's like when you're a doctor or your surgeon. If you've never been in surgery, maybe you're not familiar with this. I have. Sometimes they wake you up and say, uh, do this for me or do this to me. Or do this, do this, do that. Um, or count down from 10 whenever they're giving you the anesthesia, right? This is part of bedside manner. They don't need you to count down from 10. You need it. And they know you need it. And so they help you in this way. Right? Doctors do things that they know you need, not because they need you to do that. They're the surgeons. Jesus is a great surgeon. He rarely, he never needs your help, but he knows you need his help. And this is the invitation, right? But first, you have to be put at rest. And what good surgeons do is they sit you down and say, listen, I'm going to take care of you. I've done this a thousand times. You're going to be fine. This is what Jesus does in John 15. He says, listen, this plan has been long in the work before you were born. You're going to be fine. Rest in what I've already done, right? Okay, now, I know you're probably thinking, but wait, Court, we got responsibilities here, right? I feel the ones on the Enneagram in the room right now. You're, you're anxious. Like, I hate this nebulous, mystic Christianity. Tell me what I need to do. Okay, I'm, I'm working on it. I'm headed there, okay? Yeah, there we go. Right after that, he says, already you're clean of the word because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So he says, listen, it's not all on you. Experience the rest of God. And then he follows that up with, but there is fruit to bear, so you need to do something. And what is the doing? Abide. Abide. After Jesus' resurrection, he finds himself on the seashore with his disciples. Many of you are familiar with this story. Peter has betrayed him. They're out fishing. Jesus cooks breakfast for them all, and he looks straight to Peter, and he asks him a question. I think this is key in Jesus finalizing his moments on earth with his disciples. What question do you think he's going to ask them? Because I, how important do you think this is? These guys are going to go on to be some of the most catalytic church leaders that have ever been. They will preach the gospel. They will see thousands saved. They will ultimately create a movement that takes the Roman Empire by storm, infects the Roman Empire with the gospel, and soon even the Roman Empire is predominantly Christian within a century of time. It's incredible what they're going to do. Jesus knows this, knows what's at stake with these 11 men. What do you think he asks them right before, right? He says, do you love me? That's such an odd word to use, right? Like, who cares if they love you? Do they know what they're supposed to do? That's what the ones in the room are doing right now, right? Henry Nouwen says this. He says, the question from Jesus is not how many people take you seriously or how much are you going to accomplish or can you show me some results? Instead, he says, are you in love with me? Perhaps another way of putting the question would be, do you know the incarnate God? Because in our world of loneliness and despair, there's an enormous need for men and women who know the heart of God. A heart that forgives, cares, reaches out, and wants to heal. In this heart, there is no suspicion, no vindictiveness, no resentment, not a tinge of hatred. It is a heart that simply wants to give love and receive love in response. It is a heart that suffers immensely because it sees the magnitude of human pain and the great resistance to trusting the heart of God who wants to offer consolation and hope. Listen to me, friends. Jesus is the ultimate mobilizer of disciple makers. Do not get me wrong. He is the ultimate sender of great missionaries. He knows the stakes of this mission. He died for it. 
And yet his prerequisite for being launched into your purpose and your calling in life is not about competence. It's not about ability. It's literally just about abiding. Do you love me? That's the prerequisite. If you don't get anything else from this morning, I pray you know, discipleship is about loving Jesus. It always has been. It always will be. It always drives back down to this question, do you love me? Or when Jesus uses the word abide, what does he mean? He means finding your home, your dwelling place in Jesus alone. Henry Nouwen goes on to say this, through abiding, we can keep ourselves from being pulled from one urgent issue to another, from becoming, check this out, from becoming strangers to our own heart and God's heart. That is what had happened to me. That's why I I realized something was wrong. I had become a stranger to my own heart and God's heart. Abiding keeps us home, rooted and safe, even when we're on the road moving from place to place and often surrounded by sounds of violence and war. Abiding deepens us in the knowledge that we are already free. We have already found a place to dwell. We already belong to God, even though everyone and everything around us is suggesting the opposite. I underlined that when I read that quote. Everything and everyone in your life is gonna suggest the exact opposite of what I just said. And abiding in Jesus reminds you of the truth. Jesus knows this. And he teaches us that our primary action needs to be abiding because without abiding in Jesus, we are bound to be swept away by our fears, concern, urgencies of the broken world we live in. Jesus knows that what we're called to offer the world as missionaries is an alternative to the madness that they experience on a daily basis. And if we aren't abiding in Jesus, what do we really have to offer? Um, A lame social club or a hobby? I wanna tell you, if church is your hobby, buy a boat. I'm serious, Get, get a set of clubs, do something. I don't mean clubs like go to the club. You can do that too if you want, I mean, heck. To each his own. If you're trying to find a hobby though, can I just, ease your pain. I'm a pastor, and this is the lamest one you will find. It's more. It has to be more. Or here's what's even worse. Either we're going to be offering people a hobby, or we're going to be offering people religion. Which is more damning? I cannot tell. I would venture to say religion's more damning. Here's a set of values. Here's a set of principles. Here's a set of rules. Work your way to God. Oof. Is that what we're offering people? I would, I would venture to say no. Abiding is a constant state of security that our place of origin is God himself and anything less will not do. Our home is Jesus and anything else that's offered to us just will not do. This is it. And it's only in this kind of communion with Christ that a real passion and zeal for God and the things of God is birthed. It's why I was stuck in the cul-de-sac for so long. It's because you can't cultivate passion for God without abiding in him. You can't. It is impossible to try to conjure up on your own a love for Jesus. We need him. That's why Jesus says, hey, my father's the vine dresser, but I'm the source. Abide in me. Abide in me. And before he sends out Peter and John and James into a dark world where they're going to be missionaries and preaching the gospel and potentially they're going to be suffering and persecuted, every single disciple was killed and died a martyr's death. Before he sends them out, though, he says, listen, do you love me? Why? Love for God was the only thing that's going to keep them. Abiding in Jesus was the only thing that was going to allow Peter to say, I can rejoice when they beat me. There's a 
story in Luke chapter number 10. I'm not going to turn there for the sake of time, but Jesus goes into the house of a woman named Martha and her sister Mary. And he begins to teach. And Mary, one of the sisters, sits at the feet of Jesus and she listens to his teaching. Martha, meanwhile, is cooking dinner and washing dishes and doing all the work for all these people who have come to hear about Jesus. And Martha finally, like many of us would, gets fed up and goes to Jesus and says, listen, can you talk to my sister? She's just ogling over you over here and I'm doing all the work. Can she not help? Jesus' response is not what you would think. He looks at her and says, Martha, you're anxious about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Your sister has chosen the good portion, and I'm not going to take it away from her. What a terrible moment for Martha, right? Fine, you do the dishes, Jesus. Now, the thing is, you say that, you say that, and he he could, right? He'd be like, okay, they're done. You know, that's that's rough. (laughs) What does he point out here? He, He never says, Martha, what you're doing is unimportant, Doesn't say that. He didn't say that. He said, you're anxious about many things, and he didn't say the many things you're anxious about don't need to be done. What he said is, only one thing is necessary. Only one thing is priority. Only one thing can't go undone. Like the dishes can go undone, but this can't go undone. Discipleship, breaking out of the cul-de-sac of discipleship, rests upon the principle of essentialism. And by that, I mean you have to ask yourself, what is essential to your faith? Can't go undone. Answer, abiding in Jesus is that thing. If you've, ever gone on a, if you've ever gone on a trip, maybe overseas or something, and you have children, you know that there's a ton of things that need to get done before you go. Who's going to watch the dogs? Who's going to mow the lawn while we're gone? Who's going to watch the house? You know, who, who's going to um, pack for this kid versus this kid? We gotta, when you, pick, you get your bag that you're going to have when you have like a toddler on a plane. You got all kinds of things in there, right? You got like Cheez-Its and toys, and you're just packing all kinds of headphones for myself when they cry, earbuds for my person sitting next to me that hates me, um, all these different things, right? You get to the airport, you drive up there, pull in, you come to the ticketing counter and they ask you, can I see your passport? And you don't have that. Let me ask you this question. You'd give all the cheese that's in the world to have your passport at that moment. Here, take my 17 neck pillows, just give me my passport. You don't care about any of the stuff you packed. And here's the thing, if you have a toddler, you know I'm not saying that stuff's unimportant. Try to fly on, an, you know, try to fly on a 15 hour flight with a toddler and you don't have some cheese its tough. Can I promise you something, though? Your passport's essential. You don't travel without it. Listen, there are many things, many things about discipleship that are important, but there is one thing that is essential, and that's abiding in Jesus. It's love for Jesus. If you try to do the other important things without a love for Jesus, friends, you're headed for, you're headed for not just burnout. Like, like, like burnout, hopefully by God's grace, he could pull you back. The worst thing that could happen to you is if you could just settle into that kind of nominal religious mentality and never realize that it's not true Christianity. That's my fear. It's a, that's a fearful place to be. One of the things that has most really been uh, a blessing and helpful and it was during my sabbatical, was going to old biographies and, and reading quotes of, of saints that have gone before us and hearing in them uh, through the years and, and, and through the pages their love for Jesus. I'm going to read to you some of these quotes. And, and if you're an auditory learner, you can close your eyes and just listen. If you're a visual learner, they'll be behind me on the screen. 
these were really helpful for me. And again, I, I'm not trying to conjure up experience, but for me, these were some things that began to stir my affections. So I want to read them. Starting with uh, Spurgeon, of course. I have a few of his in here. He said this, I go to God with a promise, which in reality is just a check issued by God himself on the bank of heaven. He cashes it for me. And then I go and I use what he has given me to his glory. I think I can say that seldom many minutes elapse without my heart speaking to God in either prayer or praise. Next one from Spurgeon. I have spread the Bible on my chair, kneeled down and put my finger upon a passage and sought God's instruction. And I have thought that when I have risen from my knees, I understood it far better than before. Here's one from Martin Luther. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Here's one of my favorites from Jonathan Edwards. God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of him is our proper. It's the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, the company of any or all earthly friends. These are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Lewis, C.S. Lewis said, God made us. He invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on, I love this, the British petrol. And it would not run properly on anything else. God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel of our spirits. We're designed to, to, we are designed to burn the food of our spirits that we're designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it's no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. Now, he uses religion in a different way there, but without bothering about the faith. God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself because it is not there. Here's one from Calvin. There is, a no, there is no knowing that does not begin with knowing God. Check this out. This may surprise some of you. The gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. It cannot be grasped by reason and memory only, but it is only fully understood when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates to the inner recesses of the heart. Another one from Spurgeon. Faith may be the road, but communion with Jesus is the well from which the pilgrim drinks. Here's one from the revivalist preacher, George Whitfield. The care, this man preached, uh, he preached up to seven, eight, nine, ten sermons a day. <laughs> Insane, right? Listen to what he says, though. The care of the soul is a matter of the highest importance beyond anything which can be brought into comparison with it. Here's one from Augustine, one of my favorites. To fall in love with God is the greatest of all romances. To seek him, the greatest adventure. To find him, the greatest human achievement. Here's one that'll challenge you from A.W. Tozer. The love of Christ wounds and heals, fascinates and frightens, kills and makes alive, draws and repulses. There can be nothing more terrible or wonderful than to be stricken with love for Christ so deeply that the whole being goes out in a pained adoration of his person. An adoration that disturbs and disconcerts while it purges and satisfies and relaxes the deep inner heart 
Watch this line. I want the presence of God himself or I don't want anything at all to do with religion. I want all that God has or I don't want anything. That's what Tozer says. And then I'll finish with another one from Henry now. And he says, what I'd like to say is that the spiritual life is a life in which you gradually learn to listen to a voice that says something else, that says, you are the beloved and on you my favor rests. I want you, he says this to us as we read, to hear that voice. It's not a very loud voice because it is an intimate voice. It comes from a very deep place. It is soft and gentle. I want you to gradually hear that voice. We both have to hear that voice and to claim for ourselves that the voice speaks the truth. Our truth. It tells us who we are. That is where the spiritual life really starts. By claiming the voice that calls us the beloved. Now, I don't know about you, but what I gain from those quotes is that although there's many shades of differences in those people, right? You hear their experiences with God. You got a tozer that is just so different than Henry Nowen in the way he speaks. You know, one's an intimate voice. One's like, I want all of God or I want none of it. Um, but you know what I find is congruent across all of these quotes? Love for Jesus, longing for Jesus desire for Jesus, hunger for Jesus. And if I had to put a circle around that and title it all, people that have experienced God. Because once you experience God, what it does is it makes you hungry for it again. It, it just does. It's like, uh, this is an imperfect analogy. It's like eating a very great meal for the very first time when your diet has been mostly ramen. You want it again, and you're, you're desperate for it again. To experience God is the greatest of all delights, and we have to have it, have to have it to break us out of a cycle that can eventually become religion. We just do. So Providence, I want to ask you, the, what is the most pertinent and final point about discipleship in the scriptures? I think it's really summed up in one question, and I'll ask you this. How is your relationship with Jesus this morning? Or how an older pastor, when I first came to know Christ, used to ask me every Sunday morning, Court, how goes it your soul? How goes it your soul this morning? Because here's the thing. It's not something that you can check off a box. That's tough, right? It's not really a question that can be quantified. And yet I'm going to go out on a limb here and say this. It's something that each of us know intuitively. We know the answer to that question. Like you're sitting here right now and you're not really trying to fumble around. You know. You know. And so without trying to keep a, or create a checklist for you, here's what I want to do. I want to encourage you with a few things that helped me. That might be able to spur on a desire. Start to stoke the fire, if you will, of desire for God. The first one is very simple. Reduce the noise in your life. The abiding in Jesus, um, because what Henry Nouwen says is so true, the voice is not a loud voice because it's an intimate voice. Every other voice in your life is looking to distract you, looking to drown out this voice. So reduce the noise in your life. There are many voices. You have to make a conscious decision to reduce the noise. Set aside time, engage with the word of God in prayer like Spurgeon talks about. I'd get on my knees, I'd put my finger on the text and say, God, teach me. And he said, I, when I would get up, I would think, 
I learn more. And then lastly, and I know that this one may be um, difficult for some of us, but we need to expect God to do something. Expect, that's faith. Expect God to move. Not hope that he will, but understand if he won't. My sovereignty, friends, this is where we struggle, is it not? Right? Hope that he does, cool if he doesn't. Um, believe that he will. And if you, if you find yourself going back to, but if he doesn't, it's all good, because I'll still, t- press beyond that and say, I, I, like Tozer, I need this. I don't want anything to do with it if it's not you, Lord. And grab a hold of, like the woman who grabbed a hold of the garment of Jesus, grab a hold and believe for that. You'll stand to your feet. I'm going to bring us to communion. We're going to have prayer volunteers on the sides. Just want to get this out. There's a gluten-free option here. Okay. Um, I think they, we even have a diagram that kind of explains how to go about this um, up on the screens. If you're a believer here, we want to invite you to the Lord's table. If you're not a believer, we're going to have a prayer of belief on the screen. And what we want you to do is we want you to know Jesus. And, and the way to know Jesus is repent and believe the gospel, which is that Jesus lived the life you could not live, died the death that you deserve, and rose again to offer you what we're talking about here, this relationship with God. Not a religious set of rules, but a relationship with your God who loves you. We want you to experience that. And, but believers and unsure alike, I want to lead us with into communion with some lyrics from a song. Uh, one of the guys who was coaching me through my sabbatical, he said, you need to listen to this guy. His name's Andy Gullihorn. And so I did. And there was this one song called Is It Real? And it's about his experience with communion. And I'm gonna read to you the third verse as he wrestles through his own experiences of being dry and even struggling with doubt. And I wanna read this to you as an invitation to the Lord's table this morning. He says, now I walk up front and I kneel down every Sunday morning when I'm in town. And it might be out of habit now, it's really hard for me to tell. But I bring the doubts that are in my mind, the questions that are in these songs that I write. But somehow in the bread and in the wine, I think I feel you there. Is it real? Is it real? Is it real? This morning I want to encourage you, it is real that he is real and that when we come to the Lord's table, that he wants to meet you there. The invitation to the Lord's table is not just a habit, not that habits are bad, not just a habit that we roll into, it's an invitation to God himself this morning. So I wanna invite you, come, come, let me pray for you. Father, thank you. Thank you that your invite extends beyond my ability to articulate it. Thank you that um, your gracious will for me is not that I would continue on that cul-de-sac, on that roundabout of spirituality, but that I would be broken out of it by your grace. And so, Holy Spirit, would you do the same in us? All of us this morning, we cry out to you. We, we echo what Tozer said. We don't, we're not interested in religion, Lord. We just, we need you. If we can't have you, we don't want anything else. So we, we just, we cry out for, for you. We want a relationship with you, Jesus. The set of principles, values, all of those things that we could try to work our way to you, it's not enough, Lord. It can't satisfy us, and we know it. 
So Lord, would you do what we can't conjure up on our own? Do it in us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.